like to invite you to turn in the, the very beginning of your Bible in the pews to ch- uh, page 3. And our reading today is from Genesis 3. I'm actually going to read all of Genesis 3. It's quite dramatic, quite um, heartbreaking, quite disturbing uh, story in Scripture about the fall of Adam and Eve. And we trace all the misery and brokenness in our world to this chapter in the Bible. It's difficult. Uh, Just a few words of introduction before um, we begin. I want to sort of introduce two categories for us that we maybe use as a lens to look through, uh, look at this text. The first is a question I want to ask you, and just be thinking about it. you, you You probably have an answer already, but I want you to suspend judgment and maybe stretch a little bit. And the question is, is God naive? Is God naive? And by the way, did you notice that the word naive, if you type it into Microsoft Word, N-A-I-V-E, it changes the I from a regular I to what's called an I with a diuresis or an umlaut I. Have you ever noticed that? And if you look at some good, good newspapers and they write the word naive, it has two dots over the I instead of the one. And that's because... You want to pronounce the I sound as well as the A sound. So it's not naive, but it's naive anyway. So I was naive about the word naive. It's interesting. I didn't know that. But Microsoft Word is great because it just fixes things like that for you automatically. Um, also, if you type in fiancé, it'll put the little tick over the, uh, the E so that you kind of put emphasis on that. It's very nice. Otherwise, it's just fiance, and you don't want that. So... The definition of naive, or at least one definition of naive, is having or showing unaffected simplicity of nature or the absence of artificiality. I'm going to to say that again. Having or showing unaffected simplicity of nature or absence of of artificiality. Is God naive? Or is God the opposite of naive, you may think? Is he completely complex and all-knowing about everything? There's nothing that escapes him at all. Keep those two things in tension for a moment. Also, I want to um, open up this category of being somebody who is a sensory-seeking person, this idea of seeking sensation. Um, and this is related. You'll see how later. I want to just tell you, just a quick example is our daughter, Kaya, she goes like this with her fingers on her eyebrows. Go ahead and do it real quick. Just once. Ooh, Yeah. She's the same one that likes to touch the back of my head and go, oh, I like your haircut, Papa. And, and Krista says, stop doing that or your eyebrows will disappear, which is true, you know. It's like if you keep rubbing them, they'll go away. But she says, I like how it feels. I like, and I, you know. And so she's a, she's a sensory-seeking person. Same with George. The very first day of kindergarten, at recess, he went outside and he put his hands in a bunch of mud. And then we, the first day of kindergarten, we said, how was kindergarten today? And he said, the rule is that you can't put your hands in mud. You know, that's, that was kindergarten. But he was seeking, you know that feeling? He was seeking a sensation. He was sensory seeking. And, and he's actually a lot less sensory seeking now. I guess Kaya is in that sensory seeking phase. But we are sensory seeking people. This is how God created us. We are seeking sensations. We're always seeking stimulus and input into our senses. And God made us that way. And I'm going to look at the idea that God made us that way because God himself is that way. God is a sensory-seeking God. And this shows up in our reading for today. 
So think about naivete or the word, the idea that God is naive. And God asks Adam and Eve a question in today's reading that you think he might know the answer to. And we're going to, we're going to explore that. So keep your eyes open for that question that God asks where you think maybe he should know the answer to that. But he's asking. So what does that mean? So with that, let's look at our reading. It's Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, from, uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, randomly. He didn't seem to object, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the complaints that I hear from non-believers, or people who don't believe in Jesus or follow Jesus, especially about this chapter of the Bible is that this is like an unfair kind of entrapment by a cruel God. So here's the idea is you put these two very innocent people in the middle of a garden and you put this tree in the middle of it with evidently some beautiful fruit on it and you say, you can eat anything but you can't eat this one. And have you ever tried this with a two-year-old? I mean, good luck, right? The two-year-old is going to go straight for that tree and go, oh, I'm I'm always pushing the boundaries that I can't have, I I can't get to. And so then the, the, the logic goes that this was, a pass, this was a test that they could never pass. This was not a fair test. It was a setup from the very beginning. And so, they say, if there is misery and brokenness and fallenness that results from this, it's really on God's tab and not on ours because he set up this whole thing for us to fail. And then when he failed, he judged us. And that's completely unfair and broken. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody in this room thinks that way. But we should be aware that there are some people in the world who think this way. And that, that's a cynical but kind of a logical reading of this text, isn't it? I mean, you have to admit, there's some logic to it. Like, why would God expect them not to do this? We have to allow that they were led astray by the serpent. But they really didn't hold on. I don't know how persuasive that serpent was, but they really were not holding on to what God told them about it. So one way you could read it is God is this sort of almost cruel God says, I got you. I caught you doing it. I got you red-handed. I knew you would do it. But the question I think is, is did God know that they would do that? God set this up. And here again I'm coming maybe back to that question. Is God naive? Does God know the future? Does God know everything that happens in every moment? Or does he perhaps choose not to? So, I want to bring special attention, and maybe find it in your Bible right now, verses 8 and 9 in this text, in this reading, where it says that God uh, was taking a walk, looking for Adam and Eve. And literally, this says that God was taking a walk in the wind of the twilight, Doesn't that sound kind of better, you know, instead of the cool evening breeze? God was taking a walk in the wind of the twilight. And that was the time of the day when it was coolest. If we don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden is, people have tried to find it. You probably can't find it. But two of the rivers that describe as boundaries are in the Middle East. And so if this was a warm kind of garden, it would follow that in the morning, Adam and Eve would kind of do what they needed to do, forage for food or whatever. In the middle of the day, they would take a siesta. I mean, it's not just one culture that has siestas. A lot of cultures rest in the middle of a hot day. They would just rest. And then when evening comes and this cool breeze comes, they come out and they do other things and they enjoy this beautiful cool breeze that cools them down, that the wind of the twilight comes out. So it turns out that at this time of day, God comes looking for his creatures to find them but also to walk with them and to experience the pleasure of this evening stroll with them 
I think of all the verses in chapter 3, these are the two that really get missed the most. Because so much of this, we think, is all about condemnation. So much of it is all about God judging the world. So much of it is about what we call the fall of Adam and Eve not trusting God, not listening to God, being led astray. And we miss this really provocative and interesting concept about God is that he is seeking some sensation. He's seeking pleasure. He's seeking the pleasure of the creation that he made. He's seeking the company of the people that he made. He wants to have, he almost wants to stroke his eyebrows a little bit in a way. You know, he wants to go into his world and feel this thing. So we're in, we're in God's image that way. We, we, like, we like a cool breeze. We like walking out on a pleasant day. And then he asks this question to Adam and Eve, because they're hiding. It says they're hiding from him. They, they knew that he was out there. They, they saw him coming, but he didn't know where they were, evidently, because he asked this question. Where are you? That's all. Where are you? And so we get the answer. Well, we hid from you. Now, here's maybe where you have to make up your own mind. Is this a rhetorical question? Did he know the answer? Was he using this question to actually say something instead of ask something? Do you understand that idea? It was, was it a rhetorical question? Or was it a naive question? Did God actually not know where they were? And he was looking for them. Let's just do a show of hands. Who thinks, it's okay, who thinks it was a rhetorical question? He knew where they were. This is good, I'm glad. Good, good. And who thinks it was a naive question? Nobody. I'm in the right place today. Good, good. I think it was a naive question. I think I have your attention now. I think it was a naive question. I don't think God was being cynical like that. I don't think God was being rhetorical like that. Now, I know God knows everything. I, I think God could even know the future if he chose to do so. But I think, and, and this, is, this is just me talking, okay? So you can make, this is in the, script, in, in the covenant church, you say, make up your own mind about this. So honestly, this is just me talking, but I think this makes sense. That God, when he enters his creation, limits himself so that he can have relationship with his people. And he does so in the Garden of Eden. He enters his creation and he limits himself so that he can feel his creation. He can seek the evening twilight breeze and look for his creation and have relationship with them and walk with them and enjoy them. And he doesn't know where they are. He's looking for them. And so he limits himself as he enters creation. And this is not unlike how he limits himself thousands of years later when he enters his creation to have relationship with his people, when he comes in the flesh as Jesus Christ, so that he can be with his people and walk with his people and enjoy his people and have every sensory experience of this world. Do you see the connection? Now again, this is just me talking, so make up your own mind. But I think God limits his own knowledge about the location of Adam and Eve. And so his question is a sincere one, a naive one, in the best possible way. I'm not saying God is naive in the sense that he's not smart or he's not experienced. I'm saying naive in the sense that in this particular moment, he didn't know where they were because he wasn't keeping tabs on them every moment. He was in a relationship with them that is 
in the garden at least, was more mutual than perhaps he has with us now. He wasn't like Santa Claus, who knows when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake. It's kind of creepy. Knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I mean, that's what we think of God now. And perhaps that's true. Probably that is true. But to have relationship with his creatures, he had a more mutual relationship with them. And so he was able to limit his knowledge of where they were so that he could go seeking for them and have a, a relationship with them. Doesn't it seem funny that an alarm didn't go off in God's house the moment they ate that fruit? Or an alarm didn't go off in God's house the moment the serpent started talking to Eve so that God could swoop in and say, don't do it. That doesn't happen. God gives them space. God, we're not in a surveillance state in the Garden of Eden. The NSA is not looking at your iPhone, you know. It's different. It's true relationship. True relationship has mutuality. True relationship has some mystery in it. True relationship means that you're not keeping tabs on somebody else all the time, at all time, at all places. That you trust them to be responsible for their own behavior and they trust you to be responsible for yours. I think that's what relationship looks like in paradise. This is kind of crazy. Is this new to everybody? It's new to me as I've been doing my studying this week. I hope maybe I've broken new ground here. I'll have to write it down and send it to a journal. Maybe not. Maybe it's just junk, okay? Really. But listen. That's what great relationship looks like in paradise. A little more mutual. True relationship comes through that way. I think that's what true relationship looks like in the next paradise. When we're with God there, maybe God won't limit himself, but we'll have more power, or we'll have more awareness, or, or something like that. But that, that, the, the, the paradisical nature of this is relationship with God. Uh, not as equals. He's still the creator. We're still the creature. But this relationship that's based on a little more mutuality, a little more trust. So God was at work trusting his creatures, loving them enough to... to Give them the freedom to make this mistake and not interfering before they did. Now, after they made this mistake, he did intervene. Um, and he did. And we say, we look at it after that, and um, there's a curse. But just think about what would happen if verses 8 and 9 were left out of our Bibles. And I think that's how the world looks at it. They don't pay attention to verse 8 and 9. They look at this entrapment idea that God... Just sort of set them up for failure. Without 8 and 9, that's what we're left with. God setting them up for failure. But with verses 8 and 9 in there, we, we have this inkling, this window into the nature of God, of him wanting to have a very mutual and beautiful relationship with his creatures and his creation. So, all that to say, going on, that there's a curse that comes of this, and it kind of goes down the hierarchy. Adam, uh, you're in trouble. Eve, you're in trouble. Uh, serpent, you're in big trouble. And uh, there's the curse. Difficulty in life, both for the woman and for the man. And this, did, this curse took like zero generations to come about, or one generation to come about. Think about the children of Adam and Eve. I mean, we love having strong families, a strong Christian family. The first family was not a strong Christian family. Well, it wasn't Christian, but it wasn't a strong family either. Do you remember what happened to the first family? One of the sons killed the other. The first death in the Bible is also a murder, okay? 
the first death is not somebody falling off a cliff or bonking their head or dying of a disease. It's one person killing another. And it was a worship war. They were fighting over how to worship God. So the next time we have a conversation about how we worship here, leave your weapons at home, okay? Because we do not want to reenact Genesis 4 and on, all right? But the first family was a mess. It took zero time for this curse of difficulty to come to fruition. And, and, so, and since then, the history of the human race has been nothing but brokenness, misery, cruelty, and horror. The last century is example of that. The last, just look at this century. This century is often to no better start than the last, I would say. It's all a mess. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. What does that mean? There's a solution even in this curse. Even in this curse, God says, there will be enmity between your offspring, he's speaking to the serpent, and her offspring. And so through all these generations, eventually, somebody is going to rise up and crush the head of the serpent. Even in the third chapter of the Bible, there's a prophecy about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fabulous? That even contained in the curse is the gospel of salvation. Somehow, God is going to come out on top in the end through a human being. He's going to enter his world again and limit himself so that he can be in relationship with his people and then redeem them by crushing Satan definitively for all time. So there's the blueprint of the cross is already inside this curse. Now you're thinking, this is all high, great pie-in-the-sky stuff. And again, I say to decide for yourself what this means. But um, I do think that we are called into a naive and sensory-seeking relationship with each other. What does that look like? A naive and sensory-seeking relationship with each other. One of the things about being naive in a relationship is that we don't actually know what other people are thinking, and we decide that we're not going to guess. You know, you get in a lot of trouble by trying to figure out what other people are thinking. And actually, that we don't know their spiritual state. We don't diagnose it for them or for ourselves. And so, where are you, this question that God asks in verse 8, is a really good question for us to ask each other. Where are you? And that has echoes in our tradition of the covenant church. Two of the questions that people would ask in the history of our church of each other is, how goes your walk with the Lord? It's a question. It's a naive question. I don't presume to know how your walk with the Lord is. How goes it? How are you? I'm interfacing with you in a naive way. And I mean naive in the best sense, again. The other question was, um, how goes it with your spirit? How goes it with your spirit? We need to ask each other these questions all the time if we can. And I don't assume to know what the answer is. That's why I'm asking. I, I don't want to manipulate you with a cynical or a rhetorical question. How goes it with your spirit? Oh, can you, feel, can you hear that one? How's your walk with the Lord? Whoa, there's condemnation is dripping out of that one. You mean it sincerely because you don't know. Um, one of the congregational health initiatives that I've seen in a, our denomination has put out is that we always get into trouble when we think we know what people are thinking. And so all you can do is observe their behavior and listen to what they say. We can't diagnose them. You can't make guesses about their motives. 
They have to be responsible for their behavior. I have to be responsible for my behavior. And actually, this is what makes a truly meaningful and mutual relationship possible between people, is people being real, responsible just for their own behavior in life and not for each other's. And so sometimes people ask me, why did so-and-so do something? Or what is so-and-so thinking? And my thinking about this is, I don't know what other people think. I don't have that skill. I, I, and you know what? I don't want it. Do you, does any of you really want that skill? To know what people are thinking? That would be horrible. I mean, that would be horrible to know what they're thinking. There's a lot of great Saturday Night Live skits about people who just say whatever comes to their mind. And it, it gets very funny very quickly, right? But it gets impossible, too. We need the privacy of our own thoughts. We need that. And I don't know what, so I don't know what other people think. On a good day, I'll remember what they say. On a good day, I'll remember what they do. I only know what I think, and that's only on a good day, too, because sometimes I have no idea what I'm thinking. And on a good day, I'll remember what I say, and on a good day, I'll remember what I've done. But no guarantees there. So all I know is what people say and do. All I know is what I think and what I say and what I do. So I'm, an, I'm naive about somebody else's state, and so if I really want to know, I have to ask, where are you? How is it with your spirit? How's your walk with the Lord? I have to take a stroll in the twilight breeze with somebody else. I have to experience them and life with them to have a relationship with them. I think what's wonderful is that even in this life, the curse is reversed a little bit, okay? The curse of broken relationship with God is reversed a little bit. If we're abiding, we have, think about abiding a lot, John 15. If we're abiding in the vine and connecting with each other, that undoes, right there, that undoes a lot of what happened in Eden, okay? If we're connected to each other, we're abiding with Christ, then a lot of that relationship is restored in a healthy way. But in the future, and I'm talking about where Kathy is now. I'm talking about people you know who have gone on before you, saints in the Lord. Where they are now is there is a full relationship, a naive relationship, a mutual relationship, where all their senses are engaged and they are energized and they're connected and they are alive to all things and especially to our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your solution to the brokenness of our world, Jesus Christ. Pull us into a place where we have naive and sensory-seeking relationship with each other and with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.